This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode, a conversation with two biologists from the Summerland Research and Development Centre about how climate change is impacting tree fruit production in BC and how the breeding work of the Research Centre can help the industry understand and adapt to these impacts. So let's meet our guests. Hello, my name is Jesse McDonald. Hello, my name is Chris Balichini. I work, I work for, for Agriculture and Agri-Free Canada at the Summerland Research, Research and Development, Development Centre. I'm a biologist there, knowledge and technology transfer. My background is integrated pest management and plant pathology, and I grew up in Summerland on a tree fruit farm. I'm a biologist in the tree fruit breeding program. I also grew up on a tree fruit farm, and I farm uh, cherries and ground crops. Okay, that's all I have to say for now, everyone. So I will talk to you in a little bit, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Chris and Jesse, thanks a lot for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. Thanks for having us. You guys, we're going to be talking about how the Summerland Research and Development Centre is incorporating climate change considerations into its activities. But I really first want to start with a, a pretty basic review of what you're doing up there, how you manage, monitor and introduce cultivars. So maybe we can start really broad. Jesse, can you just tell me what the main purpose or function of the centre is up there? Yeah, so... Uh... The the Summerland Research and Development Centre was opened in 1914, so it's over 100 years old now. Uh, there is no particular single focus up there except for agriculture. So we have 30 research programs with 30 different scientists and biologists and their research technicians associated with each research program. We have the Canadian uh, plant virus collection up there. Uh, there's a very broad spectrum, uh, everything from breeding to uh, integrated pest management to biological control to uh, the virus collection, as I said, to sensory labs for uh, consumer testing, climate change, climate change modeling, uh, the list goes on. Wow, I didn't re- I didn't realize it was that broad. That's really interesting. So, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to jump over to you, Chris. Like, since we're we're going to be talking specifically about your breeding program up there, can you be more specific? And, and just talk about the part of the Research and Development Center that focuses on cultivar development for tree fruit? Yeah, for sure. And, and before we get into this, uh, just, just to take a step backward and frame this a little bit. So the program that I work in, so we are all about cultivar development. And so that we are one lab of about 20 or so, 20, uh, we have 20 different researchers probably on, on site there working on different projects. Closer to 30 now. Yeah. Close to 30? Okay. Yeah. So, and we're supported by by Jesse in his knowledge and tech, technology transfer position by helping get, you know, some of our cultivars, uh, making sure they're known and, and they're getting into the hands of growers and making sure people are aware of them. So just just to frame that, like, we're just one of, one of 30. And I just, just want to make sure it's clear that it wasn't the the breeding program is not the, the main focus of the of what we do up here at the summit. So the breeding program is almost as old as the center. So it started in the 20s with apple breeding and then in the 30s with, with cherry breeding. And over the years, just as kind of a response to the industry, uh, there's been work done on apricot breeding and tomato breeding, uh, table grapes, uh, and many different things. But uh, it's kind of pared down over the years to focus on apples and cherries. 
kind of reflect you know the local industry and what the interest of uh, of local farmers was. Okay, and then so can you delve in a little more on apples and cherries? I mean, can you give can you give us a sense of the scale of what you're doing and and like what you're managing on those two fronts? Yeah, so currently in the apple program, we maintain uh, a germplasm collection of about thirty thousand different apple cultivars and about five to seven thousand different cherry cultivars. And each year, we probably we try to aim for adding about five thousand new apples and about a thousand new cherries. But it's it's subject to weather and the environment. So sometimes we're a little bit more than that, and sometimes we're a little bit less. And the, the goal is to develop cultivars that are of interest to not just uh, growers in the immediate region, but also growers all over Canada. So we have a mandate to support Canadian farmers, tree fruit uh, producers in our in our program. Can one of you give us an idea of, of just like where all those cultivars are and in what numbers and how they're managed? Uh, so on site, we have all 30,000 apples and all 7,000 cherries. So our, our process is divided into four stages. We focus on stage one and two on site and stage three and four uh, testing is done by the industry. And what that looks like, so at stage one, the numbers are the largest. So we have uh, one copy of each genotype or cultivar or variety. And we take data on all of those that look interesting to us each year. And because of limited resources, so for apples, for example, we can't take data from all 30,000. So we have to pare it down. So we have to go to the fields uh, every every day during the, the apple season and we're out there, we're tasting apples all the time, just to try and whittle it down to, say, five to 800. That kind of passed, you know, uh, the first test. So the first test is just in the field, having a look at the tree, cutting a slice of that apple, and just tasting it. And then that will go back to the lab for some further analysis. So that's stage one. So you're, you're looking at thousands and thousands of trees and just kind of whittling it down to, five to 800 that you want to collect some data on. And then, so stage two would happen. So if, if something would pass stage one, so if, if it gives us some consistent data over say three or so years, um, if it passes that test, then we make copies of those. So we have our on-site nursery. So we do the, all the propagation ourselves. So we, we replicate those and it goes into more of a structured trial at stage two. So we have for apples, we're shooting for about a dozen trees and we plant them in a randomized complete block design in stage two. And we want to know way more about them. So we're, we're tech collecting all sorts of information, both in the lab and from a consumer sensory panel. So that's, that's what stage two looks like. So essentially there's some long trajectory toward eventually something that, that fits what we're, you're looking for could, could eventually be commercialized. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to keep it um, a little bit broad at the beginning because the process takes so long that I have to make sure or our team has to make sure, uh, especially the, the breeder that, that I work for, um, that we are taking apples and, and cherries, making decisions that aren't just uh, with a narrow focus to what uh, farmers are looking for today. So it has to be something that, you know, potentially could be used in the future. So, you know, something like bicolored apples were not in favor in the 80s and 90s, but they are extremely popular today. So if, if you were to just focus on what's popular at the, at the time, 
you're going to miss the boat, you know, 10 years, 10, 20 years from now. Right, right. Okay. So I did want to add just to the scale of the breeding program at, at Summerland Research and Development Center, the you see the building on the hill kind of when you're driving along the highway and you don't really know how, how big the area is, but the property is 300 hectares. So it's about 740 acres. And of that 390 hectares is irrigated. So that's in production tree fruit. So that's about 200 and 220 acres or so. And a significant portion of that is uh, the breeding program and the work that they're doing. So I just wanted to add that. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that. So, so Chris, then, you know, how, can you talk about actually how a new variety gets introduced? Uh, so what we what do, so we, we left off at stage two. So stage three is where we pass some of the, uh, the responsibilities off to Summerland Varieties Corporation. And they are uh, an organization that's entirely owned by the BC Fruit Growers Association. And so they represent the growers because we, we take our best stab at it. So we, we are in close contact with the industry. We have to uh, listen to them, see what's important, see what the issues are, you know, climate change, resiliency, you know, marketability, all those things. Um, but we, we really need the growers to tell us, you know, to do the final testing. So if we've gone from stage one, you're looking at 30,000. Stage two, you're looking at, you know, maybe 50 to 100. By the time you get to stage three, there's really only a handful. Like, you know, let's say there's 10 or fewer that are in stage three. And those are going on to farmer's fields in real world conditions, and they're really put to the test. So, you know, it might look good up at the research station, but how is it going to perform, you know, in the real world environment? So we have uh, trial sites that SV, or Summer Environments Corporation manages in BC, Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. And those are those real world challenges, you know, that, that they face to see how they're going to do. And the information that the farmers get from those and SVC, the data that they, they collect, that kind of helps inform, you know, which cultivar is going to move to stage four, which is kind of the pre-commercial stage. And really there's going to be maybe one or two of those, you know, at a time in stage four, and then hopefully those get commercialized. Okay, well, let's continue with uh, on this track for just another minute then or so, Chris. I wanted to ask you about like previous successful introduction of cultivars. And so can you give me that overview of like what what uh, what Summerland Research and Development Center can take credit for over the decades in terms of introduction of apple and cherry varieties? Yeah, for sure. So the cherry program has been uh, quite successful over the years. So probably about you know at least 80 percent of cherries grown worldwide are either come from summerland or have summerland uh, genetics in their parentage so everywhere that cherry sweet cherries are growing on earth uh most most the there, there's a pretty good chance that they some of the genetics have, have come from summerland wow yeah so some of some of the uh, most successful ones would be lapins sweetheart staccato centennial um, the list goes on. And the interesting thing about cherries and, and kind of to, it, it makes our job a little bit easier is that the average consumer doesn't know the name of the cultivar that they're buying. So if you go to, you know, wherever you buy produce, you just buy, you know, cherries or sweet dark cherries is, is a common uh, name of them. They're not sold by cultivar, which kind of helps growers uh, pivot a little bit. So if you are, you know, if you grow five or six different types of cherries, you can sell them, you know, just as cherries throughout the season. And if you'd find that one cultivar isn't really working for you, 
you know, you can replant to something else without having to invest a whole bunch of money into marketing, you know, a single variety. So, but um, apples are, are a little bit different. So apples are one of the few things in the grocery store that are solved by their cultivar name or their trademark name. So when you go to the store, you're going to look for Gala Apples or Granny Smith or Golden Delicious. And it's quite difficult, you know, given the, the limited um, space available in a grocery store to replace an established variety. So that's why you see the same ones over and over again, um, even though they might be inferior in, in fruit quality. So some of the ones that uh, Summerland's released, so Spartan would probably be one that was that's quite old that probably everyone knows. But some newer ones like Salish and Aurora Golden Gala, and uh, some some of those are, are some of the, the products of our program by the demand. This is really I want to dwell on this because this is really interesting that I hadn't thought of is that you can do you you can spend years you you two and your colleagues can spend years and years and years developing what ultimately becomes an excellent variety, but that doesn't guarantee that it's going to get anywhere near mass production because then it's got to pass the whole test of getting people to the growers to buy into it and take that chance on a variety. If we're talking about apples compared to cherries, where you said, you know, the, the consumers are less aware of the variety names. Um, you know, they have to take that chance that it's going to gain hold in the market. And that's just a whole other set of challenges beyond your control. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just the consumer and the grower. There's also the packing lines to take into consideration because if the packing lines don't particularly like packing a specific apple for whatever reason, then that's another uh, barricade, uh, hurdle to get over. So we really need to move on to the climate change uh, main topic, but I, I, I still, if you could really briefly, Chris, just talk, answer my uh, earlier question about how, how a new variety is introduced into your program. I, I'm just curious, and it, it kind of factors into one of my, the questions about climate change coming up. We, the, the type of breeding that we do is traditional. So just a real quick overview. So we go to, we, we, plan our, our crosses. Uh, so you have to know your industry, know, know what you want now and in the future. So you, you make a good guess and you, you make a plan for each cross. So we say we do between 10 and 15 crosses a year. Each one would have an object, objective. We collect pollen from the trees that we want be, to be the male parent and we paint them onto the trees that we want to be the female parent. And we grow those apples, collect those seeds and plant those seeds in the greenhouse. Uh, to get new apple trees and cherry trees. So the process is the same for each. And once those, you know, through eight to sometimes six to eight years after that, after cross, we're getting our first fruits and then the evaluation um, starts on, on those, on the fruit quality side of things. But the things that we're looking for, so there's probably about 50 or 60 different categories of data that we're collecting everything from you know appearance to firmness to storability to uh, resistance to diseases and marketability how it performs on the packing line and all those things and just to jesse's point uh something like stella um which was released i, I believe in the 60s um things like self-fertility in cherries was was really important so you can if you have cherries that are self-fertile their own pollen can pollinate the flowers, which you know helps with increased and more consistent crop loads over years. Right. Okay. And so this is great because we're going to create a little segue here. So, so.
Hey everyone, I'm cutting in real quick to let you know about some upcoming Organic BC events to put in your calendar. Since the BC Organic Conference has been moved to November, Organic BC has organized some regional in-person gatherings in February and March to give us all an excuse to see each other. There are events planned for the Kootenays and the Okanagan, the Caribou, Vancouver Island, and the Lower Mainland. And you can find out more at organicbc.org events. The Okanagan event will feature a fruit treat the Okanagan event will feature a fruit tree pruning workshop followed by a social at Upside Cidery in Kelowna. I'll be there, and I hope you will too. That's organicbc.org events. Okay, back to the episode. Right. Okay. And so this is great because we're going to create a little segue here. So, so what I haven't asked you yet, or you haven't said, what is an average time frame from from that that breeding process and and uh, creating new crosses uh, to introducing into the market? How many years? Because it's eight years just to get some fruit. In the case of you know an apple, I think you said seven or eight years. So, what is the overall? What's a what's a typical time frame? So I'll, I'll use one of our top new cultivars that's coming out, just has a, a test number right now, SPA 1080. Uh, it was crossed in the year 2000, and we plan to release it in 2025. So that's pretty rushed, but 25 years is, uh, is, is about how long it would take. That's probably on the short end of things. Wow. Okay, well, let's, let's move on then. How has climate change been affecting tree fruit production in the Okanagan, Similkameen, and further afield? Uh, it's been climate change has been affecting tree fruit production in the Okanagan pretty significantly. So we have uh, orchards that are uh, at higher elevations now. We have orchards that are farther north, so they're actually expanding out of the Okanagan north now. Uh, we have models predicting um, where you're going to be able to produce cherries successfully um, decades down the road, and that's even farther north and farther east. Um, the pest uh, populations, the number of uh, generations of pests within a, a specific season will change. It'll increase. Um, uh, the Things like the heat dome, these unexpected or un, uh, relatively unpredictable uh, climate events. So the heat dome, uh, they attributed, it was an extra nine degrees uh, above what uh, the average should have been at that time of, the, time of the year. And they attribute six of that nine degrees to climate change. And things like that affect bud development in apples, for example. So uh, climate change is directly affecting uh, tree fruit production in the Okanagan now, and it will continue to do so in the future. Chris? Yeah, I, I think... Jesse summed up pretty well there, but just to go back not that far. So in, in 1950, uh, there was there was a really cold winter. It got to almost minus 50 Celsius. And there used to be a lot of peaches planted in peachland that are no longer. So it used to be called peachland because of everything that was planted there, but there's no peaches left anymore. And that was because, you know, we had really, really cold events that were quite frequent. You know, it wasn't uncommon for Okanagan Lake to freeze over. And we haven't seen that, you know, since the early 90s. So the climate is changing, you know, so much. I, I think it's, you know, year to year, we see these these slight changes. But if you look back, you know, 1950, in the sense of agriculture, wasn't really that long ago. 
and to get to minus 50, it's just unheard of now. So the, the climate is almost, you know, completely different. We're in, you know, have a completely different uh, climate landscape now that we're dealing with. So it's, it's, it's affecting agriculture in every way. Just to reinforce what Chris was saying there, um, my dad also grew up in Summerland and, and he has this great story about in the early 70s driving from Summerland to Naramata across the lake because it was frozen solid. Yeah, not not likely to happen. I mean, I can't remember any winters I've been here where that was possible. That's for sure. Agreed, yeah. yeah. So, so guys, when, as a farmer myself, one way I think about how climate change is affecting farming in general is just like we're, we're we've moved on from what seemed like an era of relative predictability of yearly growing conditions. I mean, relatively speaking, to to more, we're into an era of like a lot more variability. Do you think that characterization is fair? Absolutely. Okay, so real quick then, let's, how can we talk about uh, tree fruit production be affected, being affected by, um, by, by the cold? In what ways is it, is, is, are things different now and thought to be influenced by climate change in terms of, uh, in terms of colder weather? Shifting seasons is one thing. When uh, the temperature drops quickly and the trees don't have a chance to ramp down in the winter, that's another thing. Uh, late freezes that affect bloom. That's another thing. It can it, the just the extreme cold temperatures. Uh, last year, I think it was almost minus 30 at my house uh, last December. That killed all of my peach bloom. We had zero peaches this year, so um, it affects us in multiple ways. Right. Okay. And Chris, how about heat? How is heat affecting? How is climate change related heat events affecting uh, tree fruit growers? I think the heat dome is is a perfect example that everyone you know experienced in 2021, and even you know that extreme heat event. It didn't just affect the 2021 crop. The 2022 apple crop was significantly lower because of that heat dome, because you know buds are developing, vegetative or fruit buds are developing at that time, and they were just they were so trees were so stressed that it had a huge effect on 2022. Okay, uh, does anyone want to address water? You know, there's there's been a push, you know, from a long time for the the station to be, you know, use water effectively. Obviously, we, you know, it's this very precious resource. It's going to be more precious in the future, so we have to use it as effectively as possible. But the one thing I would say that's kind of changed, maybe a little bit, uh, some researchers here that are working on water, uh, before the the target was uh, just the crop that you were growing in the field. So if you had, a, you know, an apple or a cherry tree or a grapevine or whatever, just give that one, you know, unit, uh, a tree or vine enough water to survive. And that was it. But I think this, the, the focus is slightly shifting now. So you have to consider your, your cover crop, your alleyway, because it's, you know, it's, it's all a system and even using water, you know, so you might be using a little bit more water sometimes, but just, you know, using it you know, looking at the system as a whole is extremely important. Yeah, and water, the, the climate change projections for water precipitation in the Okanagan is we're actually supposed to get more, but but the problem is, is that that's supposed to get concentrated in the shoulder seasons. And so you have a lack of water av availability throughout the rest of the year, even though you have more in certain times of the year. So that's another problem. Right. And I think about cherries and it, it seems like the last few years have seen a lot of rain right around harvest, which is, which is really challenging for growers. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do one more. Jesse, you've got a background in entomology. So how about pests? How, how is climate change impacting uh, pests and, and how they interact with tree fruit crops? 
Yeah, so the obvious thing uh, in the summer is most pests are, uh, they develop on growing degree days, so heat units. And so the more heat units you have in a summer or in a season, the more gen or the faster the development's going to be and the more generations you're going to get, which means more problems for growers. Um, the other uh, consideration is that, you know, you have, uh, we talked about how cherries, for example, we're going to be able to grow them farther north. Well, the same thing goes for pests that are south of us right now. As the climate changes and things warm, it's going to allow them to move north into our area. So things that were not a problem before may become a problem in the future. Um, and on the same note, the uh, the predators of those pests, um, their development is going to change as well. So we're going to have all these new dynamics that we're going to have to deal with, even established uh, integrated pest management strategies. You know, ch climate change is going to change those. Um, so we just have to continue to adapt to them. Okay. All right. So moving on then, I mean, this, we're going to get into the meat of our, our, our conversation here, which is, which is how you incorporate all of this into your program. And it strikes me, you mentioned before that it takes 20, 25, 30 years to introduce uh, a new cultivar, which means I'm assuming that you can't really, you can't really breed for climate change considerations to any great degree. Is that, is that correct? So you're right, you know, for very specific things, uh, you know, like, you know, the heat dome, you know, can you produce a, a cultivar that's, you know, heat dome resistant, you know, it's going to be very difficult. But I think one of the ways, one of the strategies that we can use is having, you know, a broad genetic base. So we try to, uh, we have a repository of cherries and apples on site. And some of them are commercial cultivars, and some of them are not. But having those those uh, those genetics are really important to our program because we don't want to you know ever be too uh, narrow in in our in our cultivars or just have one specific type so if we bring in genetics from all over the world so we, we have genetics that come from the wild apple forest of kazakhstan and you know some apples have been you know developing there and existing for you know potentially millions of years so you you think maybe some of where the goal is to try and get some of those natural resistances and, and breed them, add them to our, our breeding pool so that we can incorporate those into new cultivars. So if you have a, if you start with a broad, uh, diverse base and you have a large number of cultivars, when you have events such as the heat dome, you, you might not have, you know, planned for, you know, a very specific thing like, you know, extreme heat tolerance or something like that. But you you will have a higher probability of finding something that was at least tolerant to these you know extreme events you know for example like um, like that so that we can we can observe and, and take measurements and see what we have so if you if you maintain a large population that's diverse odds are you're going to find something that you know like I said at least can tolerate those stresses. Oh man, well I mean I think about the summary you gave of your work before and how expensive it must be. But then when you when you talk about that and we think about these thousands and thousands of cultivars that, that, that the center manages, what an asset that is. And wow, how, how, how really prudent it makes all of this investment over decades, you know, in, in retrospect. I mean, there, there, there's just there's I guess there's just so much potential to to, I guess, change the data you're looking for based on changing conditions. And, and you've just got all of this amazing genetics to 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 look at. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges we're facing right now, and Jesse is an expert at this and way more than I am, but apple decline is something that's that's really affecting uh, apple orchards all over. And, you know, apple trees are just collapsing and dying. 
And we're seeing that in our seedlings for sure. But there are, you know, some parents and, and crosses that seem to, for whatever reason, have a lower incidences of symptoms and, and decline. So we're hoping that, you know, even though maybe they weren't uh, a, a priority for us in the past, that maybe they can, you know, potentially offer some sort of solution for something like that, potentially. I was actually going to bring that up. And and just the having the breeding program uh, genetics out in the field is such an invaluable um, asset to all the other research programs around because when an extreme event happens or a, uh, a new pest rolls in or some disease event is happening and uh, it's brand new, you have no idea what's going on as was happening with the sudden apple decline, um, just having the genetics available to go assess and Chris helped me put together um, a, a sheet and I could go do an assessment and I had all the parentage of every single tree I was looking at and it helped us source, uh, you know, what genetics might be more susceptible or less susceptible and that resource would not be there without the breeding program. So could you give some a couple concrete examples? I think this is your wheelhouse, Chris, of, of like data data that you're going to go and look at then. Like I, I, I've had a previous conversation with you where you mentioned Bloom Records. So maybe we could use that as one example. Um, what can you go what, 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 what can you go back and look at in terms of data that can help inform some breeding decisions or, or anything like that as you think about climate change considerations? So yeah, really quickly on, on bloom records. So we collect, you know, all these bloom uh, events. So we, we collect percentage of, of open flowers and date of full bloom on apples and cherries for uh, a small subset. It's just 30,000 is way too many. So we narrow it down to maybe 40 or 50 of each. Um, but if you, if you have that data, you know, and you can, you can really use that. So for example, in the spring, if you know that you're consistently at a site that is getting uh, bloom damage or frost damage during bloom period, then you can you can we can go look at at the data and potentially you know once you have that data you can recommend something that maybe blooms a little bit later so you're past those spring frosts so your your crop might not be affected for that year so certain you know that's going to be a really important characteristic for some growers probably more than others. Right. So then I think the next couple of questions are probably going to be starting for you, Jesse. I, I want to talk about about partly about education. I guess I'll start there. Like is is in terms of the way that you are incorporating c climate change considerations in it, like how, to what extent is just education of growers an aspect of what the center does? I mean, is part of this just in terms of in terms of all the varieties that are currently being produced i mean is, is part of your work just like passing on information that can be useful um to to current commercial growers and home growers yeah for sure and i i education i i don't know if i would tend to call it education but my role is is more making our science accessible to the end user so that can take many, many different forms. That could be things like demonstration fields or even applied research, but it also could be educating. So that is one component of it. But basically, uh, if we had a cultivar that the breeding program was releasing that um, was susceptible to a specific disease, and uh, that disease is not a big deal here, maybe it works here. But it, if if it was a uh, an issue out in Nova Scotia, for example, then maybe they don't want to plant that cultivar there. So it, there is an aspect of suiting a cultivar in this case to the site, but I would say it's probably more regional um, on a on a national basis. Chris, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one thing to add too, it, it's definitely a two-way street. We learn so much from growers and, you know, it really helps us, you know, like if, if we didn't have that interaction with industry of what's important to them and what's to look for, um, we would just kind of, we wouldn't be serving our purpose. So when we, when growers, when we talk to them, they tell us stuff, it informs what, how, how we shape our program and what we're looking for and how we're looking for it so that we can adjust, you know, our, our data analysis and, and our data collection to answer their questions. So it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, you know, just a one-way street of education or just giving out information to, to growers. It's definitely, you know, a back and forth that we're being informed by them. And then we, you know, just try to act as a resource for them to just whatever uh, information is pertinent to them, trying to get it to them in a way that they can understand and digest it. Right. So, but as far as uh, acting as a resource, I can think of two examples that I want to ask about. I mean, if, if a grower in the Okanagan Similkameen, for example, wants to understand their specific growing site and the conditions and how that might inform cultivar, cultivar selection, is that something they can approach, like they can, they can use the, the development center for? Is there some way of, of accessing information that can help them understand where they're growing and, and what, what growing conditions they might expect? Uh, we're, we're not a, a service provider in that sense. However, every single colleague that we have up there that I personally know um, jumps at the opportunity to actually talk to a grower and answer questions from them. It's, it's not a, a closed door. And we also, we just, we, we find uh, the individual appointments much more effective. So if, if anyone wants to come and have a look at any of the, the cherry raffle cultivars that we have, uh, it's an open invitation to just uh, give us a call and, and come for a tour, and we'll show you everything that we have that you might be interested in. Jesse, what about, uh, like, we t- 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 so far we've mainly focused on the breeding program, but I'm wondering, are there other, well, based on a past conversation with you, I know that you also work on, in some cases, just technologies that can help growers deal with adapting to climate change. Um, do you have any examples of that? The, the scope of the research station spans everything from cover crops that are effective water users, but also um, um, increase the the resiliency of an orchard. Uh, we have irrigation trials that are doing more efficient water um, practices. My particular project um, was actually in response to the sudden apple decline. What we think is happening is actually climate change is the tipping point for these trees that are under a whole bunch of other stressors like um, uh, uh, fungal canker and invasive insects that bore into it and uh, dwarfing rootstocks, which uh, put stress on the trees to keep them small and keep the vigor reduced. And there's this bottleneck of, of water uptake forming in this one particular part of the tree called the graft union. And then you get climate change come in and extreme uh, and, and prolonged drought systems. And basically the top part of the tree, the scion that produces all the fruit was going into drought conditions and just wilting and dying. In, in during that project, we were trying to figure out what was going on and we were looking at everything. We were looking at viruses, insects, uh, fungus, nematodes, which are microscopic, microscopic worms in the soil. Um, we were looking at the plant physiology, what was actually happening in the tree, everything we could think of. We we're just throwing everything at it. And one of the things that we were thinking during the, the course of that project was it's, it'd be really cool to figure out what was going on here. But what, what are the growers going to say? They're going to say, 
what do we do about it? And so um, just before the heat dome hit, uh, another researcher and I, Dr. Kirsten Hannum, uh, for example, we, 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 we found a local, uh, a British Columbia producer of a calcium carbonate spray, so a, a lime spray. It's a little a slurry. You can apply it through uh, the spray systems that most growers have. And basically what it does is coat the leaves and the fruit to prevent uh, sunburn and reduce transpiration from the leaves, thereby reducing water stress on these trees in these prolonged drought conditions. So there's things like that that we're doing. And then there's also uh, insect netting, which we're also assessing um, for uh, uh, sun uh, sunburn mitigation. So lots of little side projects like that that come out of these. Chris, we talked previously about uh, on, about a topic I wanted to raise with you again right now, which is just how climate change events can be a source of insight for all of you. Well, I, I think if you look at uh, specifically using the heat dome as an example, so when there, there's been this shift, you know, over the last 20 or probably longer than that, 30 or so years to these more high density orchards. And uh, for sure, it's, it's not going to go away anytime soon. I think there's huge number of benefits to doing things like that. But when we when we experienced the heat dome, what we noticed is, Jesse mentioned this earlier, dwarfing rootstocks, um, basically what they do is they have small root systems and they, they constrict the size of the trees. So if you were to look at you know, a modern apple tree uh, using M9 rootstock, which is an extremely common rootstock, um, if you look at the size of the tree, even a you know mature 10 or 15 year old tree, uh, the trunk diameter would be you know three or four inches at the near the base, and you can probably grow it you know 10 or 12 feet tall, and it'd be no wider than you know two to three feet, uh, which is if if you ever seen a, a wild apple tree like a an apple growing on seedling rootstocks. You know they're massive. You see some of these old orchards that you know have uh, trunks, you know, two to even three feet. In, you know, the, in the largest ones in, in diameter at the base, and they can be 20 feet tall and 20 feet, you know, wide. So if you look at you know what they're the effect that they're they're having on these roots or on these uh, scions, which is the top part of the tree, it's it's pretty impressive to to handle and control all that vigor and to produce you know very uh, compact and accessible trees. But, you know, one thing that, you know, the benefits, you know, although it takes a lot to manage and to, uh, and to train and do all the horticultural practices to a very large tree, uh, one of the advantages is, you know, it has a very large root system and, you know, a quite a large canopy. So when the heat dome happened, we noticed, you know, anecdotally, and you know, I'm sure through some of the, the data that we collected, although this wasn't, you know, a rigorous trial that we conducted on this, that trees on less dwarfing rootstocks, so larger trees, larger root systems, larger canopies, uh, handled that stress of the heat dome much better than trees that were, you know, totally sun exposed, had small canopies and small root systems. So, you know, it's it seems like an obvious thing, you know, you'd say, well, yes, we would expect that. Um, but it's I would say it's it's starting to probably seep into um, the minds of growers as, as they make decisions on planting new orchards. So, you know, we know that there's there's going to be more heat dome and, you know, like events in the future. 
And you might not just be after just, you know, the smallest, most compact tree as you once were. So, if, you know, we had growers, you know, achieving, you know, two or 3,000 trees per, per acre, uh, these super high density systems, um, people are starting to be more conscious of, you know, maybe using a slightly larger rootstock with a slightly larger root system and canopy to uh, to mitigate some of those those heat dome or, or or like events in the future. All right, so I I we're we're gonna start winding things down here, guys. But I I, I thought I'd try and go through. I'd, I'd like to try and cover perhaps some tactics or considerations for adapting to the impacts of climate change with regards to tree fruit production. So kind of like what we did up top where I went over different forms of, you know, weather extremes, I thought we'd do that again, but this time thinking about whether you have any insights or considerations or advice for growers in regards to those extremes, whether that's with existing tree fruit production or, or making decisions about what, you know, how to replant an orchard or, or newly plant. So, so let's just start with the cold again anything anything this is i know these are kind of i'm i'm this is hard for you guys i assume because these are kind of this is kind of like a broad approach but when we think about cold extremes whether that's real extreme sudden cold right in early to midwinter uh or whether we're talking about you know really cold weather even frost after blossoming any considerations or tactics that you might you might point uh point growers to considering yeah, I'd, I'd say we we talked earlier about like the expanded uh, land base that people are, are planting in now. And, you know, they're planting in sites that, you know, you would never have thought about 30 years ago just because of extreme cold over winter, early spring. And because of climate change, we've you've unlocked, you know, maybe some of those sites before they were not an option. And now, you know, they, they could be an option. But still, like as Jesse said, it did get to minus 30 last year and it, it, last winter and it can still get very cold. So the further you go away from the lake into non-traditional uh, areas, there is still risk. So I, you know, I think people are most people are well aware of that. But it's just always something to keep in mind when you look at a new site. You know, although you, you might get uh, it, maybe it's it's a site that's viable for growing. You could still be quite vulnerable to those um, those events. Jesse, anything to add on cold? All right. So uh, what about let's move on to extreme heat? Any you already kind of highlighted one uh, in talking about the the perhaps increased risks of dwarf rootstock um, and dwarf trees when when you compare it to how anecdotally how the the larger older stock uh, performed. Anything else? Any other tactics or considerations in the orchard when thinking about more extreme heat events? Yeah. So there are growers that are experimenting with hail netting, which also gives a sunscreen effect. So it's in early stages in, in British Columbia, I would say it's still kind of pilot project form. But one of the other things, um, and this leads into precipitation, if you go back to sudden apple decline, one of the things that we're seeing is cankers around the graft union. And the girthier the tree, so a little bit, so semi-dwarfing rootstock versus dwarfing, as Chris was saying, those are allowing more water uptake despite damage to the graft union. So it makes them a little bit more resilient. So that's another reason to start thinking a little bit differently about dwarfing versus semi-dwarfing. Chris, what about, I, 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 both with regard to cold preparation, preparing for these extreme cold events or extreme heat, is there, is there like, are there changes to how we irrigate that are worth considering? I'm thinking like whether, how, whether we would do extra irrigating in the, in the fall 
perhaps to 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 help a tree I don't know, be stronger through the winter. My ignorance is obvious here. Um, or just how we would water ahead of a, of a heat dome that was forecast. Yeah, I think the, um, that, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I know there was, especially in Summerland, as we, when we had the, the heat dome event last year, uh, the city had to shut off irrigation for, you know, several large growers, which was, you know, caused a lot of stress and unnecessary things. So if, we can plan better for things like that. So, you know, when you when you look, we've got some really good researchers that are far more educated on this topic than I am. But if you if you really know your site and your soil and your uh, what your tree needs, you know, so if you if you look at what you need, the area that you need to irrigate, like so your your root zone in your soil. So if you know for dwarfing rootstocks and in, in apples, for example, you know that can be you know a foot and a half or or two feet deep. So if you are, you know, you know, a heat zone or heat dome event is or like event is coming, there's really there's no benefit to watering beyond that. So if you if you want to make sure that, you know, your soils are, are charged and ready, so you, you don't want your trees to experience any extra stress before or during. So, you know, not panicking, you know, water is still an extremely precious resource, but just making sure that, you know, your soils are, are well watered. So using maybe increased frequency rather than, you know, just pouring water on and, you know, one giant dump. So if, if you have increased frequency so that you, if your soil is charged in your root zone, um, that will help you, you know, prepare for something like that. So, and, and using systems like uh, if, if there's, if it's extremely hot out during the day, you know, watering, you know, even if you, you do need to water during the day using systems like uh, drip or or really targeted uh, micro sprinklers would be useful. Yeah, just to add to what Chris is saying there, knowing your soil is so important. Um, during the the extreme heat and the drought conditions, you you can really see uh, little areas, sections of orchards that are coarser fragment soils. They have lower uh, water holding capacity than some of the the finer fragment soils that may have maybe have more organic matter. So really knowing your orchard and where those weak spots um, will be is so important to managing for water. And another note on precipitation. So the change in precipitation to, for example, spring um, goes beyond just uh, cherry splitting or lack of water later in the season. Um, it also will affect disease dynamics. So there are some fungal diseases that require, for example, um, 15 degrees for three straight days plus uh, a rain event, a precipitation event over a certain amount. So if you have more of that happening regularly, you're going to be looking at more disease problems later in the season. So there's all these other things to think about as well. And there's the, the Okanagan has a system, um, I, th I think it's about four years old now, it's called the Decision Aid System. And if you log on to that, it's a free service currently. Uh, it, it, there's disease models and insect models where you can predict based on uh, the closest weather system, uh, weather uh, um, stations to you, uh, when you might have a disease outbreak or a pest outbreak, and you might have to be looking for that or managing for that at those times. So uh, let's move on from weather. So we're still gonna talk about tactics and considerations for adaptation, but I, I really wanted to just briefly touch on, on practices. Like anything to say about uh, the use of cover crops in the orchard any any use in considering the more use of of covering your soil rather than rather than keeping it bare for example with with herbicides as is so common 
Yeah, there's um, there's a couple of researchers at Summerland, Dr. Tom Lowry, who works in vineyards, and he's more of a pest management specialist. He's an entomologist. And then Dr. Mehdi Sharifi, who's interested in soil health and nutrient management. They've both been looking at cover crops in the alleyways uh, and under trees. And I'm sorry, I can't speak to the results, but they're they're both very strong advocates that you should find something that works in your system to protect that soil. And and it'll also um, help with, with water retention and organic matter. Yeah, I was thinking water retention and, and speculating myself about whether um, more vegetation in general in the orchard may help um, offset extreme heat events and whether, because I, I know I've read about that in my own context of, of uh, field crop production is, is um, bare soil, the more bare soil I have, you know, the, the, the higher likelihood of just um, higher temperatures in the soil versus, versus, uh, you know, having, having more green manures and cover crops integrated with your crops being perhaps um, a bit of a buffer against your soil heating up. Any, any, anything to that? Yeah, I mean, in general, I think bare soil is is kind of frowned upon. It, the it, it it'll slowly get unhealth, less and less healthy over time, and that'll be uh, organic uh, matter loss and topsoil loss, et, et cetera, like that. So the so any soil you can cover up, the better. And yeah, and Jordan, you're you're absolutely right on you know lowering the you know by having cover crops in both the alleyway and the under tree portion you're lowering the temperature of your, your orchard. So not just, you know, your, your soil temperature, but also, you know, that you can measure canopy temperature, like the temperature within the canopy of the trees is, is also reduced to that. So you're going to be more resilient if you have uh, good cover crop practices. Jesse, I wanted to ask you as we wind down here, can you give some advice for how farmers can benefit best from the Summerland Research and Development Station? Yeah, the, the I mean, the most direct way is to reach out to myself or to any of our researchers. As we said before, everyone's very happy to talk to growers. That's kind of, that's the best part of our job is actually, is actually working with and speaking to growers. So don't be shy, reach out directly to us. We've started a, a YouTube page where we're, it's slowly being populated with uh, research talks from our, from our researchers. So that'll continue to be updated. You can, I think it's Summerland and Agassiz Research Centers is, is what to look for. Yeah, if you're interested in any specific talk, topic, reach out and we can gather resources and send them to you or you can chat with our researchers. That's the, the most direct way. Jesse, Chris, I really appreciate the time that you gave over to talking about this today. Thank you so much. And thanks for the work that you do. It's, uh, it seems fascinating and, and very necessary. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you very much for having us. All right, that's all for now. Before I say goodbye, I want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode. And to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. All right, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye.